Hey, Consume listeners, Jamie Lewis here. I've been wanting to try new formats for the podcast, and this sixth season, I changed things up a bit. Every guest this season is a person of color in the wine and food industry, and roughly half of the interviews are conducted by Justin Tribu, a young black winemaker with a talent for honesty and conversation. This is a temporary format. I'll be back to hosting all the episodes myself next season, but it feels like a really important change this time around. As much as I could, I wanted to facilitate real discussion, and Justin's input and guidance helped a lot with that. I would have had her do all 10 episodes, but she was in the throes of harvest. So for what she was able to contribute, I'm very grateful. You may want to hear my interview with Justin first and listen on from there. Oh, and yeah, we're on Zoom again for these episodes. In any case, thank you so much for listening and happy sixth season of Consumed. Consumed is sponsored by my friends at Slow Life Magazine, for whom I write the food column. For the 2020 October-November issue, I'm writing about ribs in Slow County, and I included the Rib Line in Grover Beach, G Brothers in San Luis Obispo, and Miss Odette's Creole Kitchen in Paso Robles. It's been a sticky week around here, let me tell you, but I'm putting the finishing touches on the article now. If you live in San Luis Obispo or Avila Beach, check your mailbox for Slow Life Magazine every other month. And if you don't already get it, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Consumed is also supported by James Onaveros at Ranchos de Onaveros Wine in the Santa Maria Valley. If you haven't already listened to my episode with James in season one, I'll tell you, he's a ninth generation agriculturalist with roots that go back to when California was governed by Spain. His ancestors had this massive land grant and it was sold off in pieces until there was nothing left. But he and his parents worked hard to buy back a parcel that overlooks the land that used to be their family's, and James planted his Pinot Noir vineyard there with his own two hands at the tender age of 23. I think one of the craziest things about James is that his last name, Onaveros, means the one true vine. The coolest part of his story, though, is that the wine is absolutely beautiful, with a very Burgundian style and influence. Taste that storyline for yourself by visiting the station in Los Alamos, where Ranchos de Onaveros wines are sold, along with elevated Santa Maria-style cuisine from Chef Conrad Gonzalez. For more information, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com or thestationlosalamos.com. In Paso Robles, the winery Indigen Cellars is owned and operated by Raymond Smith, a native of Oakland, California. Ray talks with guest host Justin Trebu about his upbringing as one of eight kids in Oakland, where he says he learned to be a forward-thinking person and one who is committed to the success of the group, not the individual. Due to the recent protests against police brutality around the globe, Indigent Cellars has experienced a lot of support lately, along with many other Black-owned businesses. Ray shares his gratitude for the new attention, but he also shares that he's been making great wines for a long time, that this really isn't anything new. He discusses the origins of the name Indigen Cellars, the evolution of his wine appreciation, and cornbread and whiskey. You may want to pick up a bottle of Ray's 2016 Ambiente wine, inspired by Super Tuscan blends, because Justin drinks that during his interview, and they talk about its flavor profile and how it's made. Enjoy Justin's talk with winemaker Raymond Smith. Welcome, Ray. How's it going? Hey, how are you? Fantastic. We're so happy to have you. Have you had a good day so far? Yeah, it's been great. Um, um, I'm forcing myself to be organized and 
and uh, I'm, I'm doing a great job for a, ch for a change. Uh, Good. I love to hear that. Yeah. So I'll start off with a few fun questions. Firstly, okay. I want to know about where you grew up um, and uh, what it was like. Yeah, I grew up in Oakland, Oakland, California. So I'm a Bay Area guy. Um, Oakland's uh, a bigger city and, and totally culture. You know, I um, uh, got to be a fan of multiple sport te sports teams right away. Uh, got to meet a diverse crowd of people. Um, and, and it's just one of those areas where there's just uh, a lot of history and a lot of culture. So, so I miss that. And What's your favorite that. part about going back to Oakland? What's your top three things? Uh, staying friends. Yeah. people, you know, because... I have a whole history there that's entirely different from here. And, yes. and uh, it just reminds me of, you know, the good old times when, you know, I was younger and lived at my mom and dad's and didn't have bills. So, yes. So, yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely. Right. So what's your family like? Do you um, have a lot of siblings? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, one of eight kids. Okay. So, so I had a big family. And uh, it was, uh, it was, it, it I don't know how other people weren't like that. You know, mm -hmm. I always had somebody to play with. You know what I mean? It was always a bigger organized unit of, of kids. You yes. know, and, and I I don't really kind of know how I would be able to to operate any other way. You know, how so, often do you get to see them? Uh, my family often, often awesome. we, we stay in touch. Uh, I get in the Bay Area. Um, as much as I can. And then there are some times where most of the glass companies where you buy bottles, uh, most of the court companies and things of that nature are in the, in, in the Northern Bay area or okay. the Napa area. So I'll use that as a, a excuse instead of getting it delivered, I'll drive through there and, you know, stop and see family and, uh, and pick stuff up myself. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who in your family would you say you're closest with? Uh, my sister, I think she's more progressive minded like me. I'm in the type of business that you have to be forward thinking all the time. And yeah. we're kind of like minded at this okay. point. She uh, was always um, uh, kind of computer nerdish from a young age. And, and, and she still has that forward thinking kind of um, um, micro engineer thought process that that works with, you know, with the kind of situations that I'm in. Definitely. Yeah. What were some of your um, most definitive childhood memories, favorites and least favorites? Uh, I think the dinner table. Yes. You know, I had some strict parents and I mean, the cliches are real. Like, you know, before the streetlights came on, we had to be in the house and dinner was at six. You had to be at the table and it was one big table and all of us were together. So everything that went on throughout the day was all handled at the dinner table with mom and dad. Yes. So, so still, it's like that. Well, it's one of your favorite meals that you'd have growing up. Um, hamburgers. Yeah. Only because I wasn't a big seafood guy and my mom made fish every Friday. See, okay. some seafood every Friday. And because <laughs> of that, she always made me a hamburger separate. So hamburgers, I think I was looking forward to Friday. Yeah, those hamburgers. So I love hamburgers. My dad makes the best burgers ever. I was back in DC a few weeks ago and that was my one of my favorite meals that we did. 
Right. Um, so growing up as a kid, did you learn a lot about your ancestors and your heritage growing up? That I didn't. Uh, I do more so now, but at a young age, um, life was different. And my father um, had some challenges in his life when he was very young and my mom also. They were entirely different, but they were young. I mean, they were challenges where they didn't grow up in a family unit. So at a young age, all they had was each other. And I had to do research to find my ancestors and, and stuff like that. So uh, I, I'm in touch with a lot of my family now. But at, at a young age, I kind of didn't know any of them. Yeah. So I love that you've gone to connect with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. So how would you say Oakland has influenced you as you've grown up? Um, I just think it made me more of a forward or progressive thinking person. You know, uh, it made me more of a, a competitive thinker, um, someone who um, is family oriented and group oriented, but also progressive to the point where I, I would be looking to, to position myself to always be in a good place, you know, yeah. and I got that kind of framework and frame of mind by growing up and going to school there at a young age. Awesome. Yeah. So over the course of your life, have you lived in a lot of places? No, I haven't traveled a lot. I, I uh, uh, lived in Oakland, grew up there. I lived on the outskirts. Um, I lived in Stockton and I lived here. Yeah. So I didn't do a lot of traveling at all. I mean, okay. live. Um, uh, pretty much Oakland was my home and I didn't do much more than that. So I love that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, I know you were a ship joiner at one time. Right. What is that? So a ship joiner's like a carpenter, but instead of wood, it's metal. Okay. So, you know, on a ship, you pretty much build things that would be built in a house from wood. It's all built from metal. And you um, kind of are the lead craft is, is what they call it. And so you uh, project, you go into a room and you decide where the beds would be in that room. And they're all metal. So you would decide the foundations, where they would be, uh, how they would be constructed, how they would be attached, uh, the restrooms down to the toilets. All the specifics were pretty much metal and they all were built just like wood. Okay. But it was all metal and it was all created um, j- just with the same carpentry aspects. So a, a joiner is like a shipyard carpenter. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. How did you get into that? Uh, my dad was um, a shipbuilder and right out of college, I uh, talked to him about the, the, um, the time that I needed off. I mean, right out of high school, I yeah. talked to him about the time that I needed off and the places that I wanted to go and travel to. And he gave me an idea how I could finance it myself by going to the union hall, getting a job and, yes. and, and making the money myself. So that's yes. exactly how I learned. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, when did you first taste alcohol? Did your family drink a lot of alcohol growing up? My dad was a big whiskey guy. Okay. My mom wasn't a big drinker at all. My dad was a big whiskey guy. And, um, we snuck into his whiskey a couple of times and tried to drink some, and it had this brown alcohol taste. 
And no matter what we put in it, we couldn't get away from that brown alcohol. And because of that, I don't drink brown alcohol today. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't big in alcohol until in, you know, my adult years. But um, um, and, and even after that, it was I learned by not being 21, you know, kind of sneaking into the bar and saying uh, a, a, a weird drink that most people wouldn't drink and let I mean, wouldn't order unless they drank it all the time. And that way, the bartender wouldn't wouldn't wonder if you were 21 or not. So, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. I had a, a history of drinking kind of um, alternative drinks, uh, uh, but I wasn't big into alcohol. OK. So after moving from whiskey, not loving that, and then right. the fun surprise drinks, how did you find wine and realize that that was delicious? Wine, uh, wine was more the business that I was in. Okay. Uh, so, so I became a bigger wine drinker once I got into the wine business. When I started working at a winery and learned a craft and started wine appreciation and they, um, the bigger wineries would have classes and they would pay for weekend classes about sensory and wine appreciation and things of that nature. So I kind of was organically, you know, slowly, methodically brought into the wine business, you know, and, and, and learned our appreciation for it. Of the first few classes that you took, what were some of your favorites? What really was that spark? Uh, the sensory, I think, to, to yes. be able to trust myself and how I taste it to be able to to taste something without a filter, you know, and not using my intellectual mind. I would tell myself, hey, it tastes like this, this and this. But if you think of your first thought process, what you taste first is a lot of times what the wine really tastes like. So yes. I, I learned to trust my own palate and trust my thought process, you know, when it came to wine. So yes. I was totally into that. And still so, yes, cheers to that. Right. Also, your your red is delicious, but I'll talk mm. about that a little bit later. Thank you. <laughs> so, what was your first job in the wine industry, and what were some of your early jobs that you did in wine? I know that you had um, a bottling wine at some point. Yeah. So, the first job was working at a winery, one of the bigger wineries in this area, called Archiero. Okay. And um, uh, it was a. Uh, Italian guys, and they made a couple of blends, but they focused on Italian wines. And um, um, so that they had an area of, of winemakers who pretty much were diverse in Italian-style wine, Sangiovese-style blends and Sangiovese. So mm-hmm. there I worked in the barrel room, and that was an area where you could work on your own at your own pace. You would get... Um, you would get work orders that would give you weeks at a time to have a job accomplished. And that worked good for me because I could work on my own at my own pace. Yes. Um, and then I also worked in bottling. And um, I learned all, to, all about getting wine stable and getting it in bottle and um, getting it um, bottle aged in order to sell. So and, and how different wines age at different perspectives. So what was it like to own and operate that mobile bottling line? What were some of the th- what are some of the things that typically go wrong with the mobile bottling line or bottling line in general? Um, it's it's mechanic. It's a million different pieces. Yeah. And there's uh, electrical circuits 
and there are small computers that tell uh, that tell sensors what to do, and these things um, can 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 fault, and these things could break or they could be out of adjustment. And um, working at a winery and doing this, it wasn't as many problems, but um, when I started working on a mobile truck, um, these trucks are like the kind of trucks you see on the freeway. They're big yeah. like that. And the whole mobile system is built inside of these trailers. And going across the freeways, this machines bump around all yeah. the time. So things get out of adjustment. And, you know, a lot of times um, the, this equipment is sound, but, you know, you, you kind of don't really know exactly how uh, uh, the package and the wine is going to bottle until you start in the morning, no matter how many adjustments you make. Yes. So as a bottler, you want to be one of those guys who adjust on the fly. Yes. Okay, cool. Right. Right. Um, so what has surprised you about working in the wine industry? Um, I don't know. Um, um, just that even as long as I've been in the wine industry, it still kind of seems like it's focused on one genre. Yes. You know what I mean? One particular genre. You know, the appreciation of wine just seems like there's not a diverse amount of people who are into wine still. You yes. know, and it was like that back in the 80s, but I'm surprised how it's grown and it still is not appreciated by uh, uh, as many different, you know, diverse uh, uh, types of people as it should be. Yes. So, so since the since the killing of George Floyd, a lot more people have been looking to support black businesses. Right. Have you felt a large increase in sales? And if so, how have you had to adjust your business model and the ways in which you interact with people? I have got a large increase. Yeah. I have got a large increase. And, and and the thing about that 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 made it unique is that there was this massive amount of people who were looking to support black businesses, you know, just because that was the thing to do. And in that, there's a ton of different black businesses. And I don't know, you know, about getting your hair done by a black business or buying pillows from a black business or soap from a black business. But wine is something that a lot of people are into. Yes. So I think my type of business was easy to gravitate to and easy to support. Yes. And the unique part about it is that now the the supporting the support of black businesses have slowed down. Yes. Uh, but in that, w when you position yourself with a good product, what I've done is surprised uh, uh, a big amount of people. And my reorders are bigger than the amount of wine that that, uh, that was bought to support black business. I love so to I hear think, that. What it did for me was bring a lot of people, a lot of attention to my brand. Yes. And and with that, uh, and this is something that I've been working on for years, trying to get attention, trying to get the wine into people's mouths. And now I have it there and I get a ton of, uh, of contacts. I get all kind of support and I get people saying they can't believe how good the wines are, you know, and and where they're surprised, I kind of was trying to get them to taste it all the time. So yes. what, what has worked out is that I'm getting my wines in a lot more people's mouths. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
Um, how do you find community within the wine industry, black community within the wine industry? Do you, do you go to certain events so that you can see more of us? Um, yeah, there is some organizations, uh, more so like in the Bay Area, like the African-American Winemakers Association uh, to bring attention to African-American winemakers. They also provide uh, scholarships for uh, younger people who want to get in the wine business. And the most important part is to bring awareness to uh, a business that we are in that is not necessarily a usual business that the black community gets into. Yes. So, so, um, so, and then there's another one called Black Vines in the Bay Area also. And these people just have events for black winemakers. Well, it's the black winemakers, women winemakers, um, uh, any diverse group. You know what I mean? Mexican. Yes. So right. they just support anybody who, who struggles to get, who's, who's not in the mainstream of winemaking. So, yes. um, um, and, and they're a big support group and, and, and an honest support group. They, they are not, they don't have a, focus on just making money off yes. of the community or nothing. They they have been constantly sending emails since all this has happened. They know that uh, sales have slowed down or sales could be slowing down for right. some people. And they're always on the phone or always on email saying, hey, what can we do? What can we do to support you? What can, and um, that's a lot of support in itself, just yeah. feeling, you know, that somebody has your back. You love. I yeah, love that. Sure. For sure, no doubt, no doubt. So let's talk a little bit about where you source your fruit from and what you like about the land. And then okay. I know uh, we were talking earlier, but tell me a little bit about how these wildfires have affected you. Okay, so I have an estate program in Carmel Valley, and there is a fire there now. And um, um, the difference in and the conversation and now as earlier when I talked to you. I wasn't able to get a, a lot of inventory because um, we've been evacuated, and um, and you know, I've had some other challenges besides that that have you know kind of uh, uh, put me in a compromising position. But since I've talked to you, they have raised the evacuation, right. so I'm able to get inside of there now, and and I'll be taking off at five in the morning to to get out there and take a look and you know see what I could do to help the rest of the community. One. Um, see um, um, what I could do to help my neighbors and, and see what kind of damage has been done and how we can get things back to, to, to usual as fast as possible and get this behind us. Right. But, yeah. yeah. So if your tasting room, um, if your vineyards and winery are in Carmel, why did right. you pass the roadways to settle in? Um, Carmel Valley was an account that I had in my bottling business. Okay. That's how I ended up there. Okay. Uh, I was provoked by a guy who who owned a winery there, an old Italian guy. Got me back into the my roots of the Italian wine from Paso. Yeah. You know, he um, was one of the guys who was instrumental in me starting my winery and and starting it there actually. So they they did a, a lease program for me and and made it, you know, easier for me to be able to get into there and, and for me to be able to have a, a state program. And, and because of that, um, it, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was easy to, to find my passion, meet my passion, and, and appreciate making a good product. 
you know. And um, so that's why I'm in Carmel Valley. But Paso okay. Robles is where I live, where I've been living since 1989. I've been yeah. here since 1989. Um, I wanted to go back to one question that I didn't go over. Yeah. Uh, the sourcing of the fruit. Yes, um, thank you. Being a wine bottler, you travel all over California. You know, so I'm bottling wine in Napa, bottling wine in Paso Robles, Gilroy, Monterey, um, uh, down south as far as Santa Barbara. And I've had relationships with some guys for over 20 years. So when it came to the source program, um, it made a lot of sense, one, to be able to 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 get wines that were um, um, in and optimum areas like get wines, cold climates for Pinot Noirs are optimum, uh, for Syrahs are optimum, um, hot climates, you know, like Paso Robles are good for Zinfandels, wines of that nature. And uh, one, I kind of just source wines from guys that I've been in business with for the last 30 years. Yes. You know what I mean? The relationships that I've had in bottling, um, these people I've been knowing forever, these guys have they have the same vineyards right now. I know their practices. I know what they taught me a ton about winemaking. I learned from guys that I bottled for. So yes. I'm still in business with the same guys that I was in business with in the in the nineties. I'm still in business with now. That's that's base the base of my uh um source programs for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Hey there, a quick interlude to talk about another one of my supporters. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality products and exceptional customer service. Community-owned Slow Food Co-op buys from local producers, ensuring that they offer their customers real and sustainable food. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and environmentally sustainable packaging. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. So let's start talking a little bit more about Indigen. Okay. Tell me more about the backstory to your label and your name. Okay. Um, It means... Um, native or wines that are native to their their respective areas. Uh, we have terroir-based programs here where we have some wines that are like uh, Estrella Clone Syrah that's from Monterey County and then another Estrella Clone Syrah from Santa Barbara County. The same year, the same barrel program, the same yeast, the same practices. The only difference is the terroir and how that dictated the flavor profiles and 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 things of that nature. So that's the, the native part of Indigene and how it, um, how it, 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 this name has came about was, was, you know, kind of letting wines, uh, 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 make the, make the flavor profiles and, and things of that nature their self instead of me doing a lot to change the wines. Yes. So your website says you're a family operation. Who helps you at Indigene? Nobody. Nobody. Okay. I mean, eight kids. I'm doing (laughs) this wine myself. I'm making it all. I'm doing it all. My family calls me when they're ready for their wine. Yes, they do. I'm pretty much a one-man operation. 
I do it all. You know, at some times, there's businesses in the area that we share employees at certain times of the year. But besides that, I pretty much do everything myself. That's okay. One man operation. Yeah. I just put family owned operation because. I love it. Right on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. for sure. Yeah, and eventually my daughter will own this business, so it will be family owned. Oh, yeah. fantastic! Yeah. yeah. How yeah. old is your daughter? Seventeen. Okay. Seventeen. So she's a senior in high school, but it, it, hopefully she'll. She's a. Uh, she's she's deep into the wine business right now. She's been to all kind of events with me. She's uh, uh helped me as uh, legally as much as she could in the yes. wine business. So. She knows the in and outs of the wine business, and hopefully she'll share this passion and keep operating this business. In a that long is so exciting. Time. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. yeah. So, Mr. One Man Show, okay. how do you make time for yourself daily? How do I make time for myself? Mm-hmm. Don't get me to lying. Um, <laughs> I don't get a lot of time to myself, to be honest. Okay. You know, my, my life has constant constantly structuring, constantly budgeting time. There's always something to do in this business. And when I'm not working, then the rest of that time is spent with my kid. You know what I mean? It's very important to keep our relationship tight. And, you know, I can keep the focus of uh, a young, you know, African-American growing girl, you know, and, and you know, the, 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 the part about how I grew up and, and, the uh, area that I grew up and the time that I grew up is entirely different from where she's grown up and, and the time that she's grown up. So I have to be very clear about, you know, how my life was and yeah. how my beliefs are and, and yeah. you know, things like respect and things yeah. of that nature. Um, um, I have to, um, 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 Something just happened. Oh, yeah. What's up? Uh, my. Okay, we're, we're good. As long as you can okay. see me, we're good. Um, okay. So so I have to kind of keep in her mind, you know, the way that she's growing up, having respect for herself, um, the things that, that she sees and how she operates and appreciates them. Yes. Um, I have to keep my lifestyle, so to speak, in that too, to give yeah. her a diverse way of thinking, a diverse way of operating, and a diverse, a diverse way of approaching different things in the world and how she does them. So. Awesome. So how many wines do you currently make, and what is Indigene known for? Um, uh, that's a, a good question. I'm making six wines right now. Okay. Um, I have a big Pinot program. Yes. Um, um, I ju- and that's because I bottled and got a ton of knowledge from a ton of Pinot guys. Okay. From, what are some of their uh, names? Uh, Ken Brown. Okay. He uh, originated with Byron Winery, Ken Byron Brown. Okay. Uh, now he does Ken Brown Wines. Um, um, Greg Vita is the hired gun. He's a guy who specializes in Monterey County Pinot Noirs. Okay. And he works uh, for probably eight wineries and... He's he, he's one of those guys who's fluent in Napa Valley and wines there, and fluent in Monterey County and wines there. Basically, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and he keeps his foot on the pulse of the wine, and he knows where the good grapes are, 
and he knows how to build a business from the start. So he's always been one of those guys who, who, if you align yourself with him, he would be one of those guys where you would always know the pulse of the wine industry and what Pinot Noir is doing right now. Okay. So, so yeah. And then tell me a little bit more about your Italian wines that you do. So for everybody that's listening, um, I'm currently drinking the 2016 Ambience. Would you say this was influenced by your time working with Italian varietals? Yeah, yeah, and and it um it is one of the wines where it's it's an alternative blend compared okay. to Super Tuscans, which a lot of times are created in their infancy, and a lot of times are uh, wines that are um, um, built in and because Italian wines are regulated a lot more than other wines, and they're really strict about what you can and can't put into the wines and still call them the names like, you know, uh, Sangiovese, Chianti's. Um, um, I learned at a, 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 the infancy in my winemaking career to, you know, to, to kind of show my flavor profiles by being diverse or being cutting edge and, and winemaking and my approach. So, um, Abiante is a wine that's uh, 56 Sangiovese, 25 Melbeck, and 19 Merlot. Beautiful. Very rare that you find wines that are made in maturity and then blended when they're Italian-style wines. Yes. Uh, you usually don't find Melbeck and an Italian blends. Therefore, yeah. I'd have made it alternative. And, um, uh, and, and either Merlot, but yes. I was thinking in the perspective of engineering a blend that was big and fruit forward. That's my style. Yeah. Uh, wines that were um, 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 fleshy and had big mouthfeel. Yes. And, and that's where the Melbet came in. And I want yes. them to be complex and have a chalky sprinkle tannin finish, which is kind of what I'm known for. And that's where the Merlot came for and, and, and the finish. So it's just one of those wines that if I stayed with the regulation way of making Italian wines and stayed with those blends, it would have been more of a challenge uh, achieving flavor profiles like this. Yeah. So I just went where my heart and my gut was and, and I'm making these wines and this style. It is beautiful. Mm. Yes. Big fruit. I love the big fruit, big mouthful. Yeah. Uh, the mid palate strong. Um, Vibrant. to it. It's a smooth transition from fruit forward to fleshy mid palate to tannin finish. It's not a bunch of big fruit and then disappear. And then the mid palate comes out of, out of the middle, out of nowhere. And, and uh, it would be more of vanilla or nutmeg and then it would just disappear and then you would get a tannin finish in there i'm, I'm more a guy who looks for the smooth transition between um mouthfeel between the, the forward and then the finish of the wines and and i think that's where i'm going to be i'm always going to try to have that flavor profile and then that kind of transition in my wine making and my wine styles yes so what wine is in your glass and why? And then there's another question on top of that. Okay. Um, so what is sustainability to you? 
not just in a natural wine sense, but in the treatment of vineyard workers, production workers, and vineyard practices. Seeing wine is not only a luxury product, but also an agricultural one. Well, uh, I kind of, you know, look for a, a certain perspective when I come to sourcing my wines, and that's because my program is 100% sustainable. It would, uh, it would be organic, okay. you know, if not um, for, for the, the filling out the paperwork and, and, and the money and all that. So it's 100% sustainable. We don't even run a bunch of tractors through the vineyard. Uh, there's no sprays, never has been. Um, um, there's families that, uh, there's a guy who works on the vineyard who's been working there for 20 years. And he has a family there who, um, who he's raised all of his children there. I've got to know him from their infancy to, to adults now, you know, and he's, um, He's the, the pulse and the flesh of this vineyard, you know, to the point where I remember back in the day um, us bottling some wine and having some problems on the truck. And um, um, it was scheduled to rain the next day. And we were wondering, do we try to bottle this wine the next day because it's going to rain or do we wait until Monday? And he said, don't worry about it. It's not going to rain until two o'clock and we'll be finished by then. 158 it started raining and i couldn't believe it i couldn't yeah. it's just like he's been there forever and he just knows the pulse of not only the land and the fruit but just of the environment the, the terroir period the weather the soil everything is just organically a part uh, of the vineyard so and then i try to focus on those type of practices everywhere i trade with every winemaker that i've known for years um, and that's uh, a big part of the decisions of fruit that I get and, and when and why, where okay. and why. Yeah. All right. So. And then what's, what are you sipping on? I, right now I'm drinking Abiante. I wanted to be able to taste what you were tasting while okay. we were talking to yeah. be able to, to enjoy this fruit. And it seems like a different experience every time I taste these wines, you know? So I love the big fruit. I love, um, how it's changed with some of my blends. It's it's changed into more of the the um, it's changed from a food wine where it was in a focused group to a bigger buy the glass wine that people were buying just to enjoy a, uh, a glass of wine, not just to just have this with a food and be able to enjoy it because you know the flavor profiles would only mix with something interesting to eat. So. Yes. I like how it's changed, uh, and I like where these wines have went in the last couple of years, how they've changed and, and how I could chase after them and still make a good product. So. <laughs> What's been one of your favorite vintages to date? I would say that's hard. I mean, I remember <laughs> 2014, um, you know, some really good cabs. Um, um, it didn't rain a lot out here but in the carmel valley and um it, and, you know, it was it was a uncharacteristically heavy year and it was an abundance of good fruit uh that's loamy soil so it kind of stresses the vines and it's uh you can get bigger fleshier pinots from that area and high acid low alcohol cabernets that you could make 
uh, really nice cabs from or excellent blends from. So. Yes. So how can people find your wines? Not only in your tasting room, online, can we find them in restaurants or different stores around the country? Uh, at this point, no. Okay. I'm working on that. Okay. Uh, and restaurants, there's a few restaurants in Paso Robles that have always supported the local economy and they're still right in the middle of it and I'm in those places. But besides that, right now I'm working on distribution. And okay. actually the amount of wine that I had um, increased production with for distribution all got bought up because of, uh, um, um, of supporting black businesses. Yes. So I'm lucky that I did kind of plus up on my production. And, That's great. And, yeah. So. What are your tasting room hours? Um, it's one to nine Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then twelve to five on Sunday. Awesome. Yeah. Those yeah. are some great hours. Right. 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 I try to get the dinner crowd. Yeah. Um, most of the people you meet aren't from here. Okay. So I get a ton of great stories. I get to meet a ton of great people and just kick back and enjoy the, the, the pulse of people that are kind of from California and all over the world coming to an area to enjoy some good wines and to um, uh, experience the Paso Robles experience. Yes. So. so with your beautiful downtown location and fabulous outdoor seating, how has COVID affected you and how have you managed to push on? Um, actually, because I have a small kiosk-style uh, uh, wine tasting area, I've kind of increased my uh, availability of seating by awesome. being outside. So awesome. I've actually benefited from the COVID area. I mean, the COVID situation and how it is right now. It's only outside seating. So um, the city and the county and the ABC that's kind of being super flexible with businesses like mine, yes. doing what they can to make sure that these kind of businesses continue to survive. So everybody's kind of exhibiting a little bit more flexibility, which has totally benefited me. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, I love uh. it. <laughs> so what advice do you have for your younger self? For my younger self, I would say, trust my gut. Yes. Follow my gut is what I should have did because my intellectual self um, consists of more than one person and there's a lot of questioning and or I'll, I'll make a decision and then my intellectual self will kind of say, is that the right decision for us? Is that what should we should be doing? Where my gut doesn't question anything. It very rarely, it's like my subconscious mind. It very rarely makes mistakes, and the decisions that I've made, if I would have stayed with them, it would have been perfect. So I think to trust my gut would be the one thing that uh, um, that I probably should have focused on more at a young age and still, you know, uh, it's just too bad that I learned this at an older age. Right. Yeah. So. so as a young black woman in the wine industry, what advice do you have for me? I would suggest that you get into the business of the wine industry. Find the pulse, find your place, and get in there and fit in there. Um, the um, I think where I benefited most is that I was uh, I happened to be a black winemaker in a super competitive area where 
there's 300 guys that I could take you to meet right now in this city, and none of these guys are messing around. They're innovative. They're, I mean, super winemakers. And I'm in a place where I'd love to just be the black winemaker and, and be given a chance, but I have to stay at the top of my game to be, be, able to be competitive yes. with these guys. These guys are all over it. And if you slip, then there's always somebody to get into your spot. Yes. So I would suggest that you look at that and focus on maximizing as much knowledge as you can, as much potential as you can, and position yourself to be able to move forward every time you can, because that's what I've done. And uh, I don't really, I can't really think of a time where I made a mistake if I just focused and had myself in a position to grow and compete and, 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 and thrive in this business. Yes. So you will always be a beautiful young black woman and you will hopefully always be in this business, but I would suggest make sure you're at the top of your game, not yes. with being black, but just being in the wine business because, you I, know, it's, it's helped me out um, that I am at the, at, at, not at the top of my game, but I am in a position where I can't fall off. Right. Because if so, then there's a ton of guys right here that are waiting for your position. Yes. So, so I think I happen to be black. You know what I mean? Blackness isn't a monolith. That's what right, I always say. Right, right, exactly. 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 Yeah. And then I have one final question. This is a question <laughs> Jamie always loves to finish with. Okay. And that is, you knew today was your last day on earth. What would you eat and drink and with whom? What was the last part? And with whom? Okay. Um, my dad passed away in 89. So I would definitely be eating with my dad. Yes. Um, what would I be eating? Just some regular cornbread from my mom's. Yes. Regular homemade cornbread. It's not sweet. It's not. It's just buttery and just a staple. It's just what I've ate for years. Yes. And I would probably be drinking Johnny Walker Egg because that's what, what he would want. And I can't stand it, but I <laughs> want to do what, what my dad would like. So. I love that. Yeah, Thank you sure. so much, Ray. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Consumed. I'm grateful for all of your ears every single day. The podcast is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. I hope you'll support the businesses and people featured this season and come back for another season of Consumed this winter. Until then, take care. <laughs>